This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We're very happy to have with us for this panel Rafael Fernandez de Castro from ITAM, Ambassador Jeffrey Davidow from the Cohen Group, Thomas D'Aquino from the North American Forum, who's here representing the entire country of Canada today, <laughs> along with Jamal Kokar from the Institute of the Americas. Thank you, gentlemen. I will turn the panel over to you. So much of what we've discussed um, this morning kind of posits that there are solutions to be had through discussing all of the issues that we're trying to wrap up through a NAFTA renegotiation and opening of NAFTA as a trade agreement. And as an old trade negotiator, one of the things that we always ended up having to fight was the Christmas tree, if you will, of issues that get laid on to a trade agreement with the assumption that somehow trade agreements are going to solve all of the problems that we're trying to solve for. And so one of the questions that came to mind as I was sitting here and spoke to others is that, so how much of this is actually just politics? And how much of it is actually wrapped up in a trade agreement? And so much of that links between the constituents that we speak to, both in in all three countries, um, business, labor, civil society, and others. And in the conversations that we've had thus far, We've talked about security, we've talked about migration, we've talked about immigration, we've talked about low wages and jobs in all three countries. And for about an hour and a half this morning, we touched on the essentials of what a trade agreement actually does. So it seems to me that we're getting to the point of of a more fruitful conversation right now on, on the politics and the management of a political set of relationships which Antonio or Itzmena brought up, is that this we're talking about a series of bilateral or perhaps a series of trilateral hub-and-spoke relationships that need to be managed and try to address the needs and aspirations of, of three countries. And I can think of no better panel than what we have, people that have been involved in deep research in the academic side and, and policy, um, uh, managing at the highest levels of government foreign policy relationships between countries, much-loved and much-respected ambassador to, to Mexico. And, of course, Tom DeKino being uh, perhaps one of the only other Canadians actually up here um, to speak from the northern perspective, and more importantly, perhaps, from the perspective of his experience of the private sector representing the private sector and at the CEO view of what goes into trade agreements. So perhaps, Tom, I'll start with you. <clears throat> Jamal, thank you very much. And I, I think, unless there is a, an outcry from the room, the, the Canadians are very much in a minority. So um, if you hear me talk a wee bit more about Canada than what we've heard, you'll, you'll fully understand. First of all, congratulations to the uh, organizers of this conference. I certainly agree with Alan Burson in the last panel when he said, when we're facing the kind of challenges that we are in North America, the best way to do it Uh, It's to get together and to talk. And if we listen to the senator at lunch today, 
Uh, it was a critiqueur for let's form alliances in order to recognize that not everything happens in the Oval Office in the Great Republic. Uh, there are many, many points of influence, and that means the ability of well-meaning people to come together to make change happen. Uh, let me just say before I begin that uh, I'm very pleased that we've got a few Canadians in the audience, including a, a very old friend and colleague of mine that I want to identify. His name is Ronald Mannix. And the reason I want to identify him is there's no single individual in Canada, in the private sector in Canada, that has done so much to support uh, the uh, integration of North America, our original free trade agreements and the NAFTA, uh, than Ron uh, Mannix. So I'm very pleased that he's here with us because in many respects he's a, he's a pioneer. The other thing I wanted to say is um, we, we were asked, and uh, when I had a conversation with Raphael, that we should concentrate on maybe a reflection of what our respective diplomatic strategies are for dealing with what I call the Trump uh, earthquake. So uh, let me, just before I do that, try to encapsulate in less than a minute what the Canada-U.S. relationship has been for the better part of a century. It's been a relationship that's been very close. It's one based on friendship. And there's no um, better quotation, in my view, as to what the relationship really means than what was uttered by President John Kennedy in an address to the Canadian House of uh, Parliament in 1961. And I quote, he said, geography has made us neighbors, history has made us friends, economics has made us partners, and necessity has made us allies. Those to whom nature is so joined together, let no man uh, uh, put asunder. And I would say that that concept of deep friendship um, and institutional linkages um, has continued, more or less, with maybe a few little bumps along the way, and with the memories banished of the 19th century when, together with our British allies, we actually came down and burned the White House. Incidentally, that's why it's now called the White House. It wasn't originally the White House until we burned it down. Uh, but having reached a what we like to think in the true north, strong and free, a, a total and unmitigated victory over the Americans in the Battle of 1812, we've never sh fired a shot in anger since. So the relationship in the 20th century uh, and into the 21st century has been a, a very, very solid one. So now we are, just like Mexico, presented with a challenge. And it's the challenge of uh, Trump populism. It's the challenge of Trump nationalism. And it's certainly the challenge of Trump uh, economics. So let me quickly outline, Jamal, for you how uh, what I would describe is the total Canadian strategy for dealing with this extraordinary phenomena. First of all, just like Mexico, Canada recognizes that the United States is by far its most important, uh, not only trade and economic partner, but also security partner. Unlike Mexico, Canada has a long tradition of having fought in wars together with Americans, First World War, Second World War, the war in the Balkans, Desert Storm, Afghanistan. Canadian soldiers have been on the front lines fighting. Uh, so we have that in common. We also have NATO in common, that organization that a certain 
President-elect Trump really questioned whether it was uh, even relevant any longer. Thank God his Secretary of Defense very recently said that, in fact, it was still the bedrock of the transatlantic alliance. Obviously, Canada and the United States' role in NORAD, the protection of the North American continent, and, of course, the FTA and the NAFTA. Now, responding to the Trump challenge, there's been a rapid buildup in Canada, just as there's had to be in Mexico City. My God, the world has turned upside down. Uh, the status quo is not going to uh, do any longer. How do we respond to this? Well, I'm very pleased to say that under young Mr. Trudeau, I say young Mr. Trudeau because I actually served on his father's staff, and I was working for his father when he was born. Now, I'm not Methuselah, but I just want to, I was very young in those days. <laughs> Now, uh, uh, so what Canada, the, the Canadian strategy, and I think Mexicans and, and Canadians can learn from one another. The Canadian strategy is what we call an all-America strategy and an all-government strategy. So it's not just the prime minister's office. It's not just the Department of Foreign Affairs. But it's defense. It's security. It's immigration. It's natural resources. Uh, it is the environment. It's immigration. All of these departments have all been brought together uh, with a supreme challenge, and that is how do we get through the next six months? How do we get through the next four years? So uh, there has been this very rapid coming together in the marshalling of resources. Secondly, um, there's been a very subtle uh, form of diplomacy, to date quite successful, because if you take a look at our prime minister and take a look at the president of the United States, these two individuals could not be more different. Now, we have differences of opinion on international trade generally and the importance of open markets. We have differences of opinion on NAFTA, on migration, on the environment, on relations with the European Union, on relations with NATO, Mexico, and China. And that's just the beginning of the list where we have differences of opinion. However, uh, the Prime Minister has been very, very clever, very astute, and what he has done is he's not emphasized the differences in opinion that we have, but in fact he's seeking common ground on Canada-U.S. defense and security cooperation. How do we fight ISIL more effectively uh, instead of perhaps sending a, peace mission, uh, uh, a peacekeeping mission to Africa, as the Germans have asked us to do to replace them? Perhaps we will take the... Uh, the warning that unless you get your defense uh, commitments up to 2%, uh, you may be in trouble. You know, this is the Trump thesis that his allies aren't uh, carrying the burden. And uh, in addition to that, we're focusing on border facilitation, regulatory convergence, and energy cooperation. So these are the things that we have in common. That's what we know they want to talk about, and that's what we are saying we want to talk about. The other thing is that we've concentrated on relationship building. And here again, I've exchanged almost twice, sometimes three times weekly information with my Mexican colleagues on how Mexicans are working to build relationships and how we are doing it. Well, our bridge building started very early on, right after uh, the election, not the inauguration, and reaching out to people such as Rance Privas and Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon, Yes, even Steve Bannon. Um, our outreach to the key cabinet secretaries that came into positions, certainly a superb, superb general, uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, a good, an excellent soldier in, in General Kelly, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Tillerson, 
You don't get to the top of Exxon unless you're an absolutely first-class individual. And these are individuals who are very powerful, positive assets in the Trump administration. And we began and have continued to have dialogue with these individuals uh, from the moment they were confirmed, and in the case of the White House, House staff, going right back to November. Outreach to congressional leaders and to uh, caucus members. And we've even utilized, um, to show you how tolerant we are in Canada, in partisan terms, that we've even utilized former prime ministers who weren't liberals. And I'm referring to former prime minister Brian Mulroney who's known Mr. Trump for about 25 years. So the current liberal government has said to a former conservative, yes, help us out. And he's been very, very helpful as a behind-the-scenes uh, intermediary. And in fact, when, uh, when Secretarios Vidigaray and uh, Guayardo were in Toronto last week, uh, Prime Minister Mulroney sat down with the two of them and said to them, Donald Trump really means well. He's a man who is not mean. He has a good heart. I'm not sure that I would totally agreed with that assessment. But anyway, he's giving good advice to both our government and to the Mexicans on how to deal with it. And here, I would say the messaging has been crucial. Because what does a prime minister or a president of Mexico have to do? You have to be a hell of a salesman when you're dealing with a person who is skeptical. So what is it that our the central core of our messaging not only in the Oval Office, but right across the United States. Currently, with a, a group of government people who are sitting in this week with the Natural Governors Conference, what is it that we're saying to them? Well, we're saying that Canada and the United States are the largest trading partners in the world with more than $890 billion in goods and services traded in 2015. That over 9 million jobs in the Great Republic depend on Canadian trade and investment that Canada is the United States' largest customer in the world, purchasing over $440 billion in goods and services each year. That Canada is the first market for 32 states, and if you count which is the second and third, for 48 states. And finally, that some 400,000 people cross the Canada-U.S. border every day, and each day we exchange $2 billion worth of trades in goods and services. Now, when, that's the core of the message. Now, the one thing we were told by people who have known Mr. Trump for a long time, including people who were former um, colleagues of his in the real estate business, he never wants to focus on too much detail. So when we were putting together these points, we said, can we keep the points to five very simple points? But the point is that we've carried that message right across the country and they're continuing to do so. We're also trying to be creative in our diplomacy. And what do I mean by creative? Canada and our Mexican friends are a little upset or a little surprised by this, right after the inauguration, our Canadian ambassador in Washington said, Canada's ready to renegotiate uh, NAFTA. People said, my God, I mean, is that the opening hand of a, of a tough and smart negotiator? You're already saying you want to, you're open to renegotiation? In fact, it was a brilliant move. And why it was a brilliant move is because the improvement of NAFTA will not only be for the benefit of the Americans. The NAFTA, which was the gold standard, the finest agreement of its kind in the world when it was first negotiated, is now old, tired, and a little tattered at the seams. It needs to be updated very badly. It's not a reflection of what new age agreements look like. So by signaling right away to Donald Trump, you said it's the worst agreement negotiated in history. Well, we certainly don't agree with that. 
However, we, I think you're trying to tell us something. You want to do something with it, and we're very open uh, to doing it as well. The other thing we've done is tried to be a little innovative. So I'll give you an example. When the prime minister and the president uh, had a very successful meeting in the White House uh, eight or nine days ago, it, yes, it talked about trade and investment and security and defense and the fight against ISIL and how we can, uh, you know, come to terms with improving our tweaking, in the words of the president, our NAFTA. So what did our prime minister do? He, he said to the president, well, we're going to have this meeting, but why don't we put on the agenda an initiative that brings together women CEOs and business leaders from both countries, and we'll have it this is a Canadian idea. And we'll have it chaired by Ivanka Trump. And that meeting will take place right after the Prime Minister and the President have had their news conference. So if any of you took the time to see it, there they were. And the Canadian seven top-notch Canadian CEO, women CEOs, sitting next to the President and our Prime Minister. And that's an ongoing relationship, which does what? First of all, it's an excellent initiative, but secondly, involves... Ivanka Trump in an ongoing initiative that keeps the doors open to the Oval Office. The, um, I'll wrap up here quite quickly, Jamal. I know I'm running out of time. Canadian diplomacy has also involved marshalling the business community. Now, as Ron Maddox will remember, at the time of the free trade agreement, when, when Canada thought it was going to be, the government was going to lose it, a major effort on behalf of the CEOs of Canada uh, turned the tide. And the government won, in fact, a majority. The business community's role in both the conception and the execution of the free trade agreement was seminal. Same thing with NAFTA. Now, what's happened? Since NAFTA was negotiated, everybody went to sleep. There weren't very many CEOs in Canada or in Mexico or in the United States that stood up and said, what a wonderful agreement this is. So it became a rather unwanted and unloved child. So what what the, the, the diplomatic strategy now is, is to forge once again an alliance of business and other interests to sell the idea of why trilateralism is important and why open trade is important. And let's keep in mind here that the Canadian government and certainly the Canadian business community is committed to what we call the long game. There will be a day when President Trump will not be in office. Now, whether that's in four years or less, it remains to be seen. <laughs> But the point is that we have to play the long game. And the long game means uh, keeping your powder dry, certainly issuing no insults to the president. And here I commend our prime minister highly that throughout the entire uh, primaries, throughout the entire campaign uh, with Hillary Clinton, never a negative word was uttered by any of our political leadership towards Donald Trump. And I can assure you, and you all know, that, that matters uh, a great deal. My final point is this, and I know that Mexico is already thinking about this, is that in our diplomatic strategy, we have to leverage other factors. And what are the factors that we want to leverage? First of all, we've just signed an extremely important agreement with the European Union. And you know what? It's vastly more sophisticated than the NAFTA. The agreement we've just signed with the European Union is the biggest agreement of its kind, the European Parliament that approved it last week said so, of its kind that the world has seen. And if you look to the, the, this Canada-EU agreement, you'll find all the elements of what we want in an updated NAFTA. We have to leverage that. We also have to leverage our relationship with China. 
We have to be careful there. Canada's just begun some serious negotiations with China. Will that offend President Trump? Will it get him to think, well, you know, maybe the Canadians aren't totally in our thrall and maybe they will do a deal with the Chinese. Mexico has talked about doing a deal with Brazil. There are all sorts of ways that we can play that. So very last point of all, Mexico. Um, there has been talk in Mexico that Canada was prepared to throw Mexico under the bus. You know, we've got a free trade agreement. If the NAFTA goes down, we'll always have the Canada-U.S. free trade agreement to rely on. And isn't it better that we just do this on our own? It is true that both Canada and Mexico will have to negotiate bilaterally uh, with the Trump administration. But that does not prevent us from doing things together in what I call, and I've told my Mexican friends, we may not march into the Oval Office together uh, singing what a great agreement Trump uh, NAFTA is. But what we can do is operate uh, with a, what I call a uh, this is the old trade lawyer in me, with a degree of conscious parallelism. We'll learn from one another. There will be differences in the negotiations. But the one thing we'll have to recognize is that it's not in Canada's interest uh, to abandon Mexico. And why? I've watched the evolution of Mexico from the very beginnings. When I hosted a dinner for uh, President Salinas at the time that the first negotiations started with the NAFTA, and I have watched the evolution. I've worked, had the privilege of working with four Mexican presidents. The Mexico of 1992, 1993 is not the Mexico of today. And I know there have been problems, and we've talked about them and very honestly this morning. But Mexico to Canada represents a huge market. I won't go over the numbers. You heard them all this morning. And therefore, the relationship with Mexico is important. So important that we in the private sector and the government have signaled to Mexico that if the NAFTA were ever to go down, Canada and Mexico would have their own free trade agreement because we believe that relationship is so important. Sorry if I'm over time, Joel. So I'm not going to challenge Tom right now. Um, he is wearing a rose tie and doesn't mean he's wearing rose-colored glasses, but nonetheless. Um, I would have a different perspective than to, in many respects, having sat in Washington and seen post-9-11 just exactly what happened to Canadian trade interests in those early days where the border got shut down firmly, and it took uh, interventions by the automotive industries on both sides of the borders, directly with Andy Card and Carl Rove, to get them to open up the border. So it's, it's not smooth sailing uh, all along the way, and I know you know that, Tom, but, but I just want to let our audience know that the relationship with Canada and the United States is a complex and often very, very difficult one um, that needs careful management. And, of course, we're not uh, directly in the sights of the United States or in Washington, um, as I think we've seen, certainly Mexico has been in the last uh, in the last little bit. And I know, Jeff, you'll have some thoughts uh, just on what it is like to see that relationship when you see Washington focus laser-like on uh, on, uh, on on Mexico in a certain way. Tom's presentation was uh, superb, and I think. Uh, uh, to the degree that there is uh, that there are analogies, many of the things that Canada is doing in relation to the current situation with the United States could and should be replicated by Mexico. The search for allies in the United States, the emphasis on the nature of the productive relationship well beyond trade. These are important elements of a Mexican strategy. 
My reading of the Mexican press uh, in Mexican uh, rhetoric so far is that the government of Peña Nieto has done a pretty good job in keeping the response to Trump in decent channels. But there are many other people who are suggesting other approaches, which I don't think will be helpful. The whole concept of looking for allies in the United States, particularly in the business community, is extraordinarily important and something we all recognize. We understand, as important as uh, civil society is, as important as meetings such as this, uh, and I commend the, the people who have put it together, the real power in the United States, as it will apply to the U.S.-Mexico relationship, will come from the business community. And Mexico should be, and I think already is starting, to reach out to the American business community and forge alliances that will protect Mexico's interests and American interests. And as a beginning, Mexico should be working closely with those 900 or more American companies that have operations in Mexico. In their message back to their home bases should be one of support. Now, when I say, I think generally speaking, up till now, Mexico has handled the response to Trump well, there are some concerns that I have. And indeed, uh, with respect to my friend, the senator, who spoke at uh, lunch today, and I think we saw some echoes of that. The idea of Mexico threatening the United States, because it would be a threat, it would be a counter threat, with the threat of ending security cooperation would be a horrible mistake. Mexico's looking for allies. Mexico's looking for business people and others who would say, no, Mexico's a good friend. Stopping security cooperation, although it might appeal to a, you know, an emotion, would give others, perhaps people surrounding Trump, the opportunity to say, ha, we told you. Mexico's not a friend. Mexico's not interested in fighting narcotics. Mexico's not interested in fighting terrorism. Mexico's not interested in cooperating. That would be a disaster. So as much as the, the temptation is there to throw that on the table, I would hope that wise minds in Mexico would understand that it would be counterproductive in creating the political environment that we need in the United States that could be helpful to Mexico. I'm not sure I'm explaining myself, but I'll, I'll answer the questions later, okay? The other point, there are some other points I, I want to make. Uh, 
I don't know if my dear friend Alan Burson is still here. I, he should be. I sat through his approach. I, <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, is to say, as Alan said, and as we are seeing others say, General Kelly and others, that there will be no mass deportations is really of very little value. I think the idea that there would be mass deportations, which came from the initial rhetoric of Trump at at the start, and even he moved away from it, is a straw man. No, there are not going to be mass deportations. There's no chance of that. But the chance of serious violations of human rights and civil rights of Mexican citizens living in this country is real and profound and has created an atmosphere of fear in the Mexican community. All of us who live in San Diego would not have to go too far to talk to people who are keeping their children at home from school, whose mothers don't want to risk separating themselves from the children, because what happens if the mother gets picked up during the day? It's one thing to say that only criminals and felons will be picked up, but the way the immigration authorities work is that when they go to a house and find other people who are here in an undocumented, illegal status, those people are vulnerable too whether they're in the house or the shopping center or where have you. And I think it's fair to say that the rhetoric of the Trump administration is encouraging, empowering, and empowering immigration authorities at the local level. And we will see more abuses, which will increase you know, I'm making a prediction, and I, I realize Yogi Berra said, Yogi Berra said, never make predictions, especially about the future. But I'm going to make one right now. If we add 10,000 more immigration police, we will have infinitely more problems, because as we have seen, as the number of Border Patrol go up, they are poorly trained, they are rushed into action, and they abuse people. Not all of them, maybe not even 99% of them. But one, yeah, that sounds like Donald Trump. (laughs) I'm sure not all Mexicans are rapists. I'm sure there are some good people, as he said famously. But one of my suggestions for Mexican policy is to be extraordinarily firm in in relation to the protection of Mexican citizens in the United States, to do what they've already started to do, which is to uh, uh, inform the Mexican communities of their rights, provide legal counsel, be strong. That's the issue for me, because it's a very human issue. Let me tell you, and I don't mean to shock you, I don't think Mexico Mexico and Mexicans should really care at all about the wall. The wall is our problem. If we want to 
I'm looking for a good word, uh, throw away our money on the wall, that's our problem. It really should not be a focus of Mexican attention, even though it's profoundly insulting. So, as Mexico enters into this discussion with the United States, it should have a very clear focus on what it wants. It wants to protect its citizens. It wants the government of the United States to act in a humane way. And it wants to protect the benefits of NAFTA. Now, everybody's talking about, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity to improve NAFTA. Well, you know, that's, that's a, a, a rationalization. Nobody was talking about improving NAFTA a year ago. But it does justify a certain amount of negotiation. Uh, and I think if we can improve NAFTA, fine. But finally, let me say this. We've got to keep in mind, and Mexico's got to keep in mind, this is very difficult. And Guillermo was talking about who, who, is, the, who is Mexico negotiating with? Is it Donald Trump and his tweets in his political rhetoric? Or is it very serious and accomplished people like Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Kelly? This is going to be a continuing problem. We know quite a bit about Donald Trump. And uh, uh, this is all, I should say, this is all very liberating for me. I spent 35 years in the Foreign Service being... <laughs> Uh, as apolitical as a eunuch. Um, but I have left the Foreign Service, so I'll say what I think. <laughs> Donald Trump sees the world in extraordinarily simplistic manner. We all know that the problem of jobs in the United States, of employment, is infinitely complicated and it relates to numerous factors, most importantly, automation, globalization, what have you. For Donald Trump, the simplistic approach is get those jobs back from Mexico. We know that migration is an immensely complicated issue. What is the simplistic answer? Build a wall. Come on. None of these make sense. However, that beast must be fed. And it will be up to Mexico, I'm sorry to say, to come up through negotiations with resolutions, with new approaches that will allow Trump to claim victory. He will need political victory on some things. And that's going to be very difficult. But I just think that as we move along, uh, it's going to be necessary. Uh, hopefully, the negotiations can be done with people as serious as Tillerson and Kelly and others. But Trump will need to be satisfied somehow. So, those who are going to do the negotiation, uh, good luck to you. <laughs>
Thank you, Jamal. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Tom. I, I'm uh, very content to, to, to share this uh, table with you. And, and let me let me start by an, by, an, uh, by sharing with you an anecdote uh, that will illustrate the trust between Los Pinos and the White House. Los Pinos is the Mexican uh, presidential compound. Uh, uh, President Calderón was actually the only foreign leader who met President Obama being President Obama, President-elect. It's a very short period of time. We came to Washington uh, January 11, 2009, and, and Obama and Calderón had a very nice meeting. I, as, a, as a foreign policy advi advisor, I didn't make it to, to the luncheon table. <laughs> I stayed away, but I sat next to Dan Restrepo, who eventually became my, my counterpart in the, in, in the White House. Uh, he was the director for Latin America at the National Security Council. And he was the one doing Obama, <coughs> Obama's talking points when Obama was talking to Calderon, and I was doing Calderon's talking points when we were talking to Obama. I'll tell you, three months into the Obama administrations, Dan and I, we were already changing the talking points before the, the presidential calls. So I came to Felipe Calderón and said, President, this is what Obama is going to tell you. Yes, indeed, uh, the conversations was very, were very boring because they knew what, what was happening, but that was very important because obviously we kept dangers out of, of it and we kept uh, surprises out of the conversations. Of course, uh, down the road, there were some differences, and then I will tell Dan, Dan, I cannot send you the... the the talking points, because we haven't finished them, he knew something was coming, and yes, there were disagreements, but, but, but basically we learned to disagree, and, and, and we, in a way, we will give them a heads up if there was some problem coming out of Mexico on the other way around. Uh, let me uh, uh, also share with you, in uh, just three years ago, the National Security Agency, the NSA, was caught spying not only the U.S. foes, but also the U.S. friends. So uh, places like the U.K., like Germany, like Mexico, like Brazil, uh, we, I mean, they were spying on us. Uh, and uh, uh, what was the response of Brazil and what was the response to Mexico? I'll tell you, D Dilma Rousseff from Brazil, the, president, the then president of Brazil, she decided to cancel her trip to Washington. He took an issue with this, and, and she became very brave and very nationalistic because of that. What was Mexico's response, Peña Nieto's response to that? Well, he came to Washington. He had a serious conversation with President Obama, and, and I believe that, that he conveyed the message in a very pragmatic and a very serious and mature way without politicizing the issues. So what I want to say is that NAFTA had a lot of spillovers and one in, into the U.S.-Mexico relationship, and one very important was it really refrained the Mexican political class to, pay, to play politics with the U.S. Why? Because through NAFTA, uh, we decided that the U.S. was going to be key for our well-being. Uh, NAFTA, indeed, was a marriage of convenience, and, uh, and then we, we kept to this. Uh, I would say, again, NAFTA had a lot of spillovers, and one very important was in the way we relate to Washington, in the way Mexico conducted its diplomacy. In a way, Tom, uh, you're absolutely right, Mexico really started to mock, to imitate Canada. How come, yes, we became very uh, uh, pragmatic. Uh, uh, the attitude of the Mexican di diplomats after NAFTA has been very much a problem-solving approach. 
Let's deal with issues. Forget about uh, uh, bias, uh, nationalistic bias, just solve the issues. Uh, for example, just in 1991, when we were negotiating NAFTA, for example, Mexico decided to to move into a new embassy in Washington. Uh, we, before, we were in this faraway house in, in 16th Street, and we moved the embassy into Pennsylvania Avenue, only three blocks away from the White House. Just as Canada, we started to lobby Congress. Uh, we have a very important representation in Washington. The Mexican private sector came to Washington and lobbied the U.S. Congress. Actually, which is very good news, is now the Mexican private sector was last week in Washington. You know this, Tom. Our mutual friends were there. And again, the Mexican private sector is putting its act in order, and it's about lobbying Congress. It's about being there. That's been really uh, the lesson of, of, of NAFTA, is being in Washington. Then Mexico has uh, 50 consulates in the U.S., and because of NAFTA, the consulates, instead of only doing... In, only protecting the human rights of Mexicans here. It's nowadays the consulates, they truly regional embassies everywhere. They court in the media, they doing promotion of Mexico. So, so we have the largest networks of, of consulates in the U.S. And, and, it's, uh, and it's not only to protect, again, it's just, uh, I would say, to promote Mexico and to, and to promote U.S.-Mexican relations. Thanks to NAFTA, for example, we really became, in many issues, strategic, strategic allies of the U.S., for example, on, on Central America. In the 1980s, Mexico and Washington we were very much at, at odds, for example, regarding Nicaragua. Mexico was very close to the Sandinistas. On the other hand, the Reagan administration was very close to the contrast of Nicaragua. In the 1990s, and Jeff knows this very well, Mexi I mean, the, the, the partnership between Mexico and the U.S. was key for the peace process of El Salvador. When El Salvador seen its peace agreement that was in, Ch in Chapultepec Castle, and it was very keen to see the Mexican and the American negotiators sitting there uh, because we were key actors in negotiating that peace agreement. Nowadays, and, and I will conclude with this, uh, Jamal, I will say we have a real problem in Central America. Uh, El Salvador and Honduras have become the single most dangerous countries on earth. 2015-2016, the highest uh, 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 homicide rates in the entire world belong to El Salvador. In 2014, it was Honduras. So I will say we have a little Syria in the Americas in the Northern Triangle of Central America, and I was very content to observe that in the visit of Mr. Tillerson, of Mr. Kelly, uh, there was a, an important discussion about Central America, because let's face it, it's not about the wall. It's not about detaining Central Americans, because now what we call the OTMs, other than Mexicans, that's a large flow of, Im of immigration than that of Mexicans uh, trying to come uh, into the U.S. through, through Mexico. And it's very important that Mexico and the U.S. and Canada, hopefully, will put our act together and really come to Central America to go to the root problem. And the root problem is violence. The root problem is poverty. And it's all about development. Seems to me that Mr. Kelly knows that. I mean, he has testified, he has said openly, that is not only about the world, but it's about the root cause that is creating immigration. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Seems to me, and I will finish with this, that the time will help Mexico because, yes, the, the Mexican strategy is to buy time. Why so? Because we believe that 
it will be clear down the road that Mexico is not, a, is, is not the enemy. Mexico is a key ally, and that will show up. And, and, I, and I know that, I mean, if, I have never seen a business person that do not take care of, of its own business. And I will say there's millions of Americans benefiting from Mexico, and I'm pretty sure that all of those natural allies of Mexico will come out in the next few months, and they will lobby on behalf of Mexico and on behalf of North America. Thank you, Jamal. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.